Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Teresa Bailey. Teresa is the author of Hockey Moms, The Heart of the Game, co-authored with veteran sports journalist Terry Marcotte. Hockey Moms features untold stories of the highs and the lows, the challenges and the triumphs from some of the women who make up these 600,000 hockey moms across Canada. As a sample of that huge cohort, 30 hockey moms share their own journeys as they figure out how to juggle trips to the rink with raising a family, building their own backyard rinks, finding ways to pay for new gear, and dealing with the sometimes heartbreaking setbacks faced along the way. The book is a celebration of the mothers who carry the emotional burden of helping kids navigate the path through hockey and life, including first-hand stories from moms of some of the NHL's biggest stars, including Connor McDavid's mom, Kelly, and our own Toronto Maple Leafs' Austin Matthews' mom, Emma. Welcome, Teresa, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thank you so much for having me. And I'm great, and I'm actually located right now in Maydock, Ontario, which is right between uh, Toronto and Ottawa. And are you gearing up for the holidays already, or you got, you're got you so busy with your book launch that no time to think about the holidays yet? Oh my gosh, it's been pretty wild with the book launch, plus I still have three kids playing hockey myself, so there's been lots of time on the road and trying to slip into places to get what I need when I need it, and yeah, it's been pretty wild. Good. Well, let's start right at the beginning. Who is Teresa Bailey and how did you become the hockey mom? Well, I, I'm not sure that I'm more of a hockey mom than any other hockey mom, but I know that back when my own kids got into competitive hockey uh, around 20, 2007 and my oldest around uh, 2009 and I had grown up at the rink. It had been part of my culture. My parents were both presidents of their minor hockey association and, and community has always been important to me. So um, I've always been fascinated by, by the sports culture. So that's where it all started when my kids were very young. And you jumped in with a website called Canadian Hockey Moms in February 2010. What was the impetus for that? Well, I think that I was experiencing a lot of things that uh, people feel, and especially maybe women feel in minor hockey and kids hockey in a place where you're not necessarily supposed to question things. And and my own kids were getting into competitive hockey. There were some things I didn't understand. And uh, with a background in community psychology, I decided to create the space that didn't uh, exist at the time for people to come together and try to answer questions and figure out how to get through this really hectic time. And what was your goal when you started this all off? You were trying to reach moms where? Every province, every territory, or were you trying just in your own local area to get a community grassroots kind of organization going? Well, the truth is I was actually going into, uh, I had just left my formal work and gone into consulting. So I was working on my own and needed a creative outlet. So I always say that that community came from a place of needing a creative outlet of trying to see if I could use my community psychology background to create an online community and also to learn about social media. The last thing I did in, in uh, 2009, like literally the last thing, December 31st, was create a Facebook page with the intention of uh, creating this uh, community of hockey moms. So that, and then I launched it during the Olympics of uh, February 2010. And what's the status of that Facebook group now? Is that still active and vibrant? 
It is active, yeah. I, I think on that page, we've got about 35,000, 36,000 moms, and then across all of our platforms, over over 40,000 uh, hockey moms now, mostly from Canada, some from the United States, and then across um, Europe as well. well. That's an incredible community. That's a huge volume of people. Yeah, and I, as uh, with a research background, I really wanted to start putting out the research, like the actual facts around things to do with hockey whether it was concussions or body checking or or at least have those conversations and um so i that was always where i came from was giving facts but also asking people who'd been through a lot of the experiences how they would um suggest other people go through it because at the time i was a young person a young mother and and didn't really know how to get through some of those tough times the book again is called Hockey Moms, The Heart of the Game. Why did you decide to write this book and why did you feel it was a necessary part of the hockey discussion? Well, I can trace it back to that time around 2010 when my own son was, um, he experienced one shift in a game three hours away from home after we'd taken a day. He'd just turned seven. So that I, I think is a pretty extreme shortening of, a, of the bench of that, at that time. But at the same time on the same team, there were really skilled players getting yelled at by uh, opposing parents and I didn't understand that either they were getting yelled at because they were so good those things like get them get the puck take them out you know it's just really strange things to be yelling at an eight-year-old and I thought I wonder how some of the top NHL parents dealt with this like how did their moms deal with this because you would see the the looks on the faces of the parents in the stands and uh, so I thought I would love to find out and that was something that came to me back then. I knew that I didn't really have any credibility or ability to write it back then. So I started around 2016 and then got busy with my own life. And then when uh, Terry came on board around right during the pandemic, that's when it really, really came into place for us. So Terry Marcotte is your co-author. How did you get him involved? Terry had done a couple of stories on me when he was working for CTV Ottawa. Uh, he had done some stories on the website and we actually found out, we realized the day of the book launch that we had actually met in uh, 2011 during a Don Cherry Hockey Mom luncheon. And we didn't know that at the time though, but he had done some stories in 2014 and 2015 on the website and my community. And we always stayed in touch. So when I was looking for a mom's initially, I would reach out to him uh, to ask him to connect me to some moms, which he had done, but then he retired. And um, when I reached out again during the pandemic, he offered to help. help, And that was a really good offer to me. I knew that it was going to be hard to get it done otherwise. So, Well, there's a silver lining to the pandemic. Yeah, retirement plus uh, COVID equals extra time. So I guess Terry had some extra time now. Yes. Well, Teresa, you, you, you mentioned you felt discouraged from speaking up as a hockey mom. Why did you feel you were discouraged from speaking up as a hockey mom? I don't know that it's an explicit, um, well, maybe it is actually an explicit rule as you get older that, that people don't want to hear from your parents and especially your mom. But I think that um, there we can talk about hockey culture. I think that most of the moms in our book would agree that that is an implicit understanding that you have to, for the most part, stay out of the way. And for the most part, that any of the conversations that need to take place should probably be the father. I've been told that that's changing. I was told um, that that's becoming different, especially with a lot of single families and, and moms tend um, more moms who are getting their kids to the rink on their own. But still, it's, it's a thing that exists. 
it seems like kind of a revolutionary concept, but I guess as you got going, you realized everyone had these stories and these feelings, but the, I guess the medium or the, the, the methodology to be able to share them was what didn't exist. Yeah, I joke, I've joked with Terry too about, uh, I keep hearing how it's time to hear women's voices and now is the time to hear from women. And, and I think, well, it's always been the time. You don't need to tell us that. We know that. There just hasn't been the space to have the conversation. So I, that's something that I hope our, our book has done is maybe provided a bit of a, a space for women to have some conversations in ways they haven't before. Uh, you've mentioned that you consider this book a love letter to hockey moms. Are hockey moms underappreciated? Well, certainly not by each other. We don't underappreciate each other. We, uh, we're pretty solid on the fact that we wouldn't be able to get through minor hockey without uh, without the moms. I mean, we we joke about having hockey, like my hockey wife or our hockey families, uh, and you're looking after each other's kids. You're taking turns getting kids to the rink when you have to, like those things taking kids on at tournaments uh, when their parents can't be there, especially if there are more than two kids in the family and two parents involved. I mean, those are all things that happen. So we don't underappreciate each other, but I'm not sure that some of the behind the scenes work that traditionally is done by women or the fact that women have a lot of uh, really strong abilities to do a lot of the other work that they are really welcome to do. Not us, but yeah, perhaps, perhaps maybe they might be undervalued. And when you talk about hockey moms, I think that the stereotype is cheering in the crowd and just supporting their being there with the hot chocolate after and fix all the boo-boos and all that. But really, the, and you have a whole chapter on this, it must be really hard for women to step into a role where she's a respected authority figure for a team, for example, being the coach or being part of the leadership team. Traditionally, that's been, quote, for men. What did you find about that? And has that been changing? Yeah, that was an important chapter to me. And in fact, Gina Oak, who is uh, one of the coaches in that chapter, coached my oldest son, uh, was one of his first coaches. So I think that when there is that opportunity for young players, young male players to have a female coach who's actually very skilled and qualified, it changes their perspective and their perception on whether or not it's possible to have a qualified woman coaching their kids. My kids don't question it now in a way that, um, in a different way that other people would. But even when, and sometimes I was on the bench with her, so we would laugh, there would be, I would be the trainer and, um, and we would have a female coach of this strong boys team. And the assumption was always that the assistant coach was the coach, wouldn't even consider that either of us could have been in that role. And I know that uh, for Gina, she's been in, uh, she's been doing this for a long time now, and that still happens to her. And uh, and then Lisa Haley, who has a, an incredible history of success coaching and won um, won international titles, when it comes to with women coaching women, and has a great knowledge of the game, doesn't uh, get the same respect when she's coaching boys. And and I think that that is something that um, a lot of people would understand a lot of female coaches would relate to that those stories and uh it's not really mentioned per se in the book but i wonder very current you know Haley wickenheiser's taken on a very prominent role with the toronto maple leafs she's changed roles there a few times so it seems to be changing but would you suggest Teresa, it's not changing quick enough or that we're on the right path I think that it's great uh, that she's there. And even Mano Rayom, who's in our book, took on a new role as well uh, through the process of the book being published. 
I I do think it's changing. I think it's it's got to be twofold, and it has to be from the top down and from the bottom up. And I think that there's recognition now that from the top down it needs to change. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of spotlight on women doing important things in the NHL or at the, the national and international level. I'm not sure if it's going to be harder to change at the grassroots level because there's less of a spotlight on it. And I don't know if there are more people stuck in their ways. In my association, it was really easy to, because we had a strong female candidate to uh, represent all the way through that this is possible and important for women to be involved in this way. But in other associations, I'm not, I'm not sure what that looks like when you don't have the same um, um, presence. So maybe not quite fast enough, but it has to be more than just um, one strategy, I think. There are a lot of challenges detailed in your book. Uh, if you don't mind, let's talk about a few of the most compelling stories you heard. Uh, do you want to give us some of the kind of headlines or case studies, so to speak, that really drew, drew your attention? Sure. I, uh, the one that we just talked about, about representation of women coaches is, is an important one. So we've covered that and that one was really important to me. I think uh, racism is an important concept and ch a couple chapters and was actually several. We're talking about the experiences of players of color. And I, I know that, um, one chapter, there was um, Alex uh, Briggs-Blake, who uh, founded Tucker Ducks in Washington area. Lauren Camper is on the Carnegie Initiative, uh, on the board of directors, and is a real activist for black hockey, of black players in hockey. And uh, those were really touching stories, the things that they had told us about access to hockey and about what happened on the ice. I, I think when you hear it from a mother's point of view and the work that they're doing, they're such powerhouses. And then Jacqueline Smith, Devontae Smith-Pelly's uh, mother, was just so honest and, and made a compelling argument for how things need to change in hockey all the way through. And there was this really important moment for me when we were talking to her and I asked her if uh, Devontae had ever had a person of color on his bench from minor hockey all the way through. And uh, the answer was no. Wow. Right. And so when you hear those things and you hear those stories and you sort of sit back and reflect on how could that be, or why is that there's such room for change? And she was really honest and forthright about her opinion. I, I appreciated that a lot. Well, I think what's interesting about your book is there's so many stories from so many different angles, and maybe we can talk about a few more of the mothers that you did talk to. Tell us about Brenda Little. Brenda Little, yes. She was a good example of how you never stop being a mother. So she had raised two uh, sons. One became a cop, and of course, Brian played um, for Winnipeg, had a long career for Winnipeg. And she talked about a couple things. And, and I like to think about the highs and the lows with her because uh, we, we open with her, the high of her going on the mom player trip, which not every team does. A lot of the teams do um, father-son trips, but they don't do mother-son trips. So she talked about how that special that was for her. But then he had a very, Brian had a very serious um, injury and she was at home watching TV 
And when you know that your son is hurt, it's no different than when they're a child. You still have those same feelings. And she had to wait. She said it's different. You know, at one point you would be able to call the trainer, you would be right there. And now you're depending on the wife to give you those updates. And that actually was a career ending injury, which was uh, really difficult. And I will I'll, I will say that for the parents who experienced that of not being there and the child having an injury when they weren't there and couldn't get to them, it was actually really hard for them to relive those moments. And um, we that was something after the first couple that we did, um, I realized I would probably handle it differently next time because it was really hard for people to talk about it. Well, it's very interesting when you talk about the process of putting the book together. I hadn't thought that uh, I guess you can talk a little about the timing, whether this was COVID related, but were you able to talk to all these people face to face? Did it have to be over the phone, over Zoom? And, and how did that affect the kind of emotional uh, content of the conversations you were having? Yes, that's it really evolved because the very first um, the very first interview I did was with Terry Konechny and I was connected to her through Nathan Parrott, whose uh, mother is also in the book. And uh, the plan was to be in face with Terry. It was, I think, 2017, 2016, 2017, but it was freezing rain. So the very first interview I did with a recorder and like, like literally a recording um, and from a car in a parking lot because neither of us could get any further. And then we did it like it was ridiculous. And then we did some interviews. I did some interviews in person. So that was prior to the pandemic. So uh, uh, Kristen Krause and Darlene Shaw, uh, Duchesne ended up being, uh, Chris Duchesne ended up being a phone interview. Oh, it was fascinating to be able to go and talk with Kelly McDavid. I met her in her office, which was really interesting. So a lot of the about uh, seven, I think, were done prior to the pandemic. And then once the pandemic hit, it became all Zoom. Everything was Zoom. So, And it, that actually made it a lot easier for us because Terry and I would be talking to people all over the world. And what was the process? You would record an interview and then you would consult with Terry. Would you write it together or how did that process work? We would record the interview uh, and the transcription. There are automatic transcription services now, which is fantastic, right? I, I, mm -hmm. From my days as a qualitative researcher, that's a game changer. So that was already a process that I was familiar with, but it was a lot easier now with technology. Uh, so we would talk about the themes, uh, put down some ideas of where we thought the uh, the key points were and things that I really thought should be included in Terry too. Terry is a brilliant storyteller. He's a really great at putting the story together. Um, and I learned a lot from that. So he would, uh, we would put some ideas down. He would come up with the first draft and then I would go back because I'm the one with the, uh, the mom, the mom eyes and the minor hockey eyes really. <laughs> so uh, it was a combination between those two things. And by the time we actually had the book deal, we had probably done about half the interviews. So we already had a good chunk of our book together and then uh, we're able to continue it in a, in a, in a, I think a strong way. And if I understand you right, so you had a book deal before the book was done. Yes. Well, this is what happens when you have a, a niche community of over 40,000 people um, and somebody who's been talking about this stuff for years, you have a CT, you have a, a journalist who has 40 years of experience 
and an idea that has never actually been talked about. I think that people recognized HarperCollins. Great, I'm glad that they recognized that this would be of interest to people. So yeah, we were pretty lucky that way. That's pretty good. Now let's talk about a few more of the moms. Some of them caught my eye. Talk about Bonnie O'Reilly. That was a very interesting story. Oh my gosh. What a, she is just fascinating to me. So Bonnie O'Reilly and her husband, uh, they had four kids and they also had over 40 foster children that they raised. And the stories that she told, um, they aren't stories, I guess they're stories, but talking about their life and how they were always playing sports and and trying to make sure that um, these families, these children were included. And I mean, she runs marathons. I don't know where she gets the energy, but then she was always giving back. And the the story that I think a lot of people are familiar with when her um, rink manager and like in a lot of communities, a lot of our, our kids go and the, the rink manager will let them on early or super cheap or whatever it is. And their rink manager needed a, a kidney and she got tested to see if she was a match and she was and she donated a kidney to him. So just a it's amazing. Really. Yeah. An incredible story. Like that's an incredible story. Someone who you mentioned before, Teresa, Manon Rayum. She's very interesting. 30 years ago, of course, she was the first and still only female to play goalie in an NHL game. Fast forward to today. And she herself is a hockey mom to a goalie, no less. But how does she see things now very differently? She does see things differently, and there was this really incredible moment. So we had both Mano and her mother on the call, and Mano was uh, translating for her mother, who was and 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 for us helping us. We because we weren't uh, able to speak as clearly with her mom, but there was this moment where uh, Mano talked about how when her own son was in net, and she would wake up with butterflies in her stomach, and. And she said to her mom, is like, is this what you had to deal with? And her mom said, yes, it's payback. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> just the, I can't imagine what her mother went through with Mano in the position that she did under so much scrutiny and pressure, um, playing with men in, in, that, um, in that atmosphere. It was really interesting to talk to both of them. And uh, now when she looks back, when she talks about being the mom of a goalie, what does she call it? the worst thing is that what she said the worst thing something like that yes (laughs) that is the exact the worst (laughs) thing and i guess she sees what she she put her poor mom through not by choice but that that's how it goes to be the mom of a goalie that's a tough thing it is and that's why they sit by themselves a lot at the end of the ring they don't want anyone around and that's what they do and we understand it there was two other moms that we'd be remiss not to talk about because they're so well known and that is Connor mcdavid's mom kelly what was your experience like with her Kelly is a really special person. Uh, she was so gracious. I mean, she was one of the very first moms we had, and she didn't have didn't have to say yes, and she did say yes, and uh, invited me to her office. I got to sit with her for a long time. We interviewed her, I think, three times. I had interviewed her twice on my own, and then and then Terry and I went back to her once or twice too. She is just so solid. Like she is just a solid person and kind and smart and um when you think about the things that they would have had to juggle with two children because she has an older son too and um thinking about how you navigate those things about how you navigate parents who are angry that 
that Connor is so good. Uh, and it was really fascinating to talk to her about how they had handled everything. And I think um, a lot of families deal with those similar things. How do you, how do you make sure that everyone in your family, all the kids in your family are getting enough attention and, and you're celebrating everyone's gifts. And, and I think Kelly did a good job of that. And another mother who had to deal with a son who's just so far ahead of everyone else was Austin Matthews mom. Yes. Um, Emma was really interesting also. And that's an example of a family who, or specifically her, really didn't want her son necessarily to go into hockey. She really thought because um, Austin was such a good baseball player that he would be a baseball player. So she she talked about having him taking shots in the garage and in this heat. And uh, just, there was just, so much passion there was no other choice you knew that this is where he had to go so yeah she was great that's amazing from arizona and now uh lighting it up in toronto ho 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 the holidays are here at henderson brewing company sign up for a subscription of unique beers where each month you will get our current small batch beer release plus three other tap room only beers mailed anywhere in canada available in four six or twelve month subscriptions these packs make a great gift for any beer lover, including, hint, hint, yourself. Order now at hendersonbrewing.com or visit their tap room and retail store at 128A Sterling Road along the West Toronto Rail Path. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. When you look at all the mothers you talk to, Teresa, and the parents you've talked to, what's the most important advice you'd pass along to a parent navigating competitive hockey with a young, uh, young child? I think a lot is changing and even since some of the parents that we talk to a lot is changing they're they're the seasons are longer they're more intense and it never stops you know you're going from winter hockey to spring to summer and then you're right back into fall and when you see uh, the skill of a child some families feel like they want to push and I think that it's important that the child is always pulling so that is one of the things that I learned from talking from all these parents is that it's usually the ch of the really highly elite athletes, you can only get them as far as they're willing to pull. They need to be pulling you along and you can be there supporting it. And uh, the other thing is that a lot of the biggest setbacks were actually ended up being the, the biggest catalyst for growth and change. So if you can help uh, your players get through those times, there can be um, there can be a lot of growth and a lot of good things can come out of that. And, uh, you know, we all hear about enjoy the journey, enjoy the journey. But I think that was something that really got hammered home in your book. You started it off with a quote. Why don't you tell us about that quote and, and, and maybe a comment on the importance of the whole journey? Uh, are you talking about Kelly McDavid's quote? The, yeah. The, yeah, enjoy, enjoy the journey. It goes fast. I, it does go fast. And when you're in it, you don't realize it. And it, I mean, I remember having myself this moment where I walked into, it was a Canland tournament in, in uh, I think it was in Etobicoke, the Etobicoke rink. And I walked in and I had my little guy there and one of the U18 players walked through the door and I thought, oh my gosh, I can't imagine my son ever being that tall. How like, how fast does that go? Like, when does that happen? And I can tell you that it really does go in the blink of an eye. And then you get through it and think, I wish I would have done a lot of things maybe differently. Um, 
not that there are always huge regrets, but you just wish that you would have enjoyed it more. And all of it, the good parts and the bad parts, because it is over quickly. And one of the things that I really uh, found and learned from the moms, and I think knew and was kind of looking to see if other people felt the way the same way. When you're a young parent and your child gets into hockey, all of us, moms, dads, everybody, we're all growing up at the same time. We don't get into uh, hockey knowing how to handle all of the things that you know how to handle when you come out the other end. And then there's a whole new set of circumstances and challenges. So I I really realized that this whole journey, this hockey journey journey that each of our kids are in, we're actually growing up with them too. And we're we're changing and growing also. Everyone learns from it. When you look at the book title, Hockey Moms, The Heart of the Game, have you heard from the men? Where are the stories about hockey dads? I get asked that sometimes. And I think that hockey is pretty traditionally the stories of men. I think that through the ages, it's uh, these are the stories we've heard. And I really do hope that every child and every family has lots of people around them, whether it's two moms, two dads. We do have a, a chapter with two moms, actually, which is really special one, too. Uh, two moms, two dads, mom and a dad, whatever. But I think a lot of the stories about dads have been told. And the reason that this has done so well is because um, it did seem revolutionary that to ask the moms. And uh, it's because no one has asked before, necessarily. Yep, they weren't asked, so they they didn't have a chance to express themselves. So now they've been given a voice. This book has been received very positively. Why don't you talk about the reaction from your perspective? How has the book been received? I do think, I I know that I always felt like it would be um, received well, because it hadn't been done before. And I think no matter who had done it, probably would have done well. Uh, I did not expect it to hit the bestseller list the first week. That was really special. Um, I did not expect it to be there five weeks later. And I did not expect um, people to come up to me the way they have, saying that they love the color cover, that it is special to them to see um, players. They just know right away that the book is about inclusion and about uh, celebrating all different types of stories. So that's been really special. And it's been really special, even the support from my own community and people that I've met, thousands of people through the hockey community. It brings people out of the woodwork, so to speak, who have seen the book and reach out. So it's been a really nice way to connect with other people. Terry and I both um, have had a really a lot of support from people. I know he has had support from people um, in the broadcast world who've helped it out. And uh, it's just been a really surreal experience um, to see how it's been received. Well, it must be so gratifying. One person you mentioned uh, at a luncheon, Don Cherry, I want to ask you about him. He is the kind of the ultimate hockey alpha male. Uh, has Don Cherry been supportive? I haven't heard anything from Don Cherry. I don't know. Uh, he's not someone who has reached out or that, that I've heard from specifically, but uh, I, I know that he was very supportive of Hockey Bumps back in the day when um, when we did that lunch, and so I would expect that he would be uh, that he would think it was a good a good book. The other gentleman I want to talk to when I think about Hockey Dads is, uh, and he was on this podcast before, Mr. Carl Subban. 
And he, of course, is famous for three of his sons have made it to the NHL level. But something I always found interesting about him is he had five kids and they were all highly productive, both academically and in sports. And I, I just wonder if you found in your research and your experiences that the the children of these parents at the high, high com competition level kind of universally were kind of at that same uh, engine speed, so to speak, high motor speed, uh, really attuned to achieving as high as they could. Did you kind of notice all the kids tended to do this or did one child out of a, a, a certain parent's kids achieve more than the others? Well, I think that the drive was universal for anyone who made it. That was the one universal thing. thing. Um, there were also parents who would say that their, their child didn't really love school, for example. So Chris Duchesne, Matt's mom, said, uh, I know they had a long drive to play AAA and then they would drive home and she was a guidance counselor. So he was never allowed to go in late to school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he is he excels in a lot of things. He's a he plays um, music. He's a musician. And so he's one of those people like what you're talking about. And I, I know his sister is very skilled and talented as well. In that same chapter is Andrew Shaw, who uh, would say, his mother would say, they didn't really love school, right? But Andrew worked really hard. And even though he didn't have the smooth ride up necessarily, and he had some bumps along the way um, to even get to the OHL, he has two Stanley Cup rings. So, you know, like, yes, the drive is is the most important wherever they put it it's the drive that and the, the grit i think and the resilience was was the key and there were some superstar families too absolutely Teresa, i wonder if you found the mothers of nhl players had more or less challenges than than you expected i think that they probably had more challenges than some people would expect i think that people have a perspective or a perception of um you know, a, a middle class to wealthy white family who had everything handed to them. And that's the stereotype right now, I believe. I think that if you if you ask people about um, what a stereotypical player or what the what the average player looked like, they would they would define that. And that's not what we saw. I mean, Nathan Parrott came from a really challenging time uh, and somehow made it through grit and determination into the NHL in his role. Um, the Shaws did not have, uh, did not have a lot of money either and worked really hard and sacrificed a lot. Terry Konechny talks about how sometimes she wasn't sure they, she was glad that they were a hunting family because they, they hunted a lot of their food and she talks about times when they wouldn't have a lot of food in the fridge or in the cupboard and, and would have families come over. And um, Jacqueline Smith-Pelly talking about their experience going through the ranks and, and some of the challenges that Devante faced. So, yes, I think that there were some instances where there were more challenges than people would expect, which I think is the beauty of, of reading the stories. They're also different. They are so different. And I wondered about international hockey moms. As you know, hockey's huge, not just in Canada, Finland, Sweden. In your conversations, did you find their experiences to be any different than that of Canadian hockey moms? Well, we didn't 
interview a lot of international moms and I think that we tried and it just didn't work out. Sometimes that happened. We talked to um, a woman who was the president of an association in New Zealand and uh, it is fascinating how they actually went to hockey because they were tired of the politics and skiing because skiing is really popular in New Zealand and and uh, so I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, I'm not sure everyone would consider there to be more politics and skiing here but maybe maybe there would um but i i think that depending on the development model and the the structures that are put in place it's it's different and even from united states to canada if you're playing at an elite level in the united states you're basically on a plane every weekend or every other weekend driving to tournaments because the elite teams are really spread out so whereas in Canada, you're, you might be driving far, but you can still get there within uh, without flying, typically, not always. So um, the, the experiences tend to be the same. The language is sometimes a little bit different, but it all it's it's the same. Uh, I want to give a shout out to my wife, Vicky. We are a ringette family, Teresa, and uh, Vicky is a ringette mom, along with all the other moms of our under-16 Richmond Hill Lightning ringette team. Would you agree that everything applicable to hockey moms is applicable to ringette moms? I suspect that a lot of it is uh, is applicable in, in any competitive sport. I think you take a lot of things away around time management and teaching your kids to deal with uh, some of the challenges and, and you know, a, a lot of those things are the same. Uh, hockey is a little more intensely scrutinized here, but uh, maybe that's maybe that's a point for ringette. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things we found is, so I'm the coach and Vicky's the manager, and all the time that as volunteers needs to be put in, we do it for our kids, we do it for our community, but I wonder, Teresa, if you've seen, do we need a change in the model of the way we incorporate volunteers, the parents as the coaches, managers, timekeepers? Is there a better model out there or is, is the one we've got working, we just need to uh, kind of tweak it a little? Well, that's a really good question. And I think probably one that's going to be looked at as things get rolling with the Hockey Canada and the new board of directors and all of um, all the changes that are going to be implemented, because that's not necessarily consistent across all levels. There are some models um, where there are paid coaches, there are unpaid coaches, some uh, organizations have a no parent coach rule, depending on the level. And I, I think that some... I'm not really sure how that's going to come in, but I think some consistency around what that looks like will probably be important. And recognizing that there has to be protection for, there has to be accountability for volunteers, but also protection for volunteers, or they're not going to want to continue. And that's at the board of directors level for each association too. We've certainly seen, you know, in Ringette, COVID was a real killer towards volunteerism. Uh, first of all, we lost a lot of players, but when came back, a lot of the parents uh, weren't either interested or available. And, and I, I, I get the sense in, in all community sports, they're having a real challenge getting the parents involved and volunteers involved for a variety of reasons. But uh, for the good of the game, we need everyone to, to still be involved. Absolutely. Actually, one of the things that has happened, uh, so our junior program in Canada requires billet families. We do have a chapter on billet families too, uh, but requires billet families to be able to step up and allow players into their homes in the communities where the junior players are going. But a lot of the families now have turned their spare bedroom into a home office. So that's a whole a whole pandemic-related uh, change that has happened that made it harder to find um, billet families once 
once the season's picked up again. Well, you wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, the bedroom's now in office. We don't have room for the billet. That's right. Yeah, my son experienced that where he is this year, actually. Yeah. Teresa, what is next for your book tour? Where are you off to? Well, we are doing a book signing at a Senator's game this week, tomorrow night. We're going to be in an Ottawa 67th game. I'm speaking at my own public library tonight, which is going to be very special for me. And uh, then we'll just continue to see where this adventure takes us. There's been lots of amazing experiences and conversations with great people, and it's been really fun. Well, what a journey you've been on. Where can we best purchase Hockey Moms, The Heart of the Game? And where can we best follow you and your co-author, Terry Marcotte? Well, you can find the book is sold pretty much anywhere. If you go on the HarperCollins website, you can find it there. It's on Amazon and Indigo. It's in stores. And you can find me at on the Facebook community, Canadian Hockey Moms, at the website, CanadianHockeyMoms.ca. And both Terry and I are on Twitter. Twitter, Terry, If you want Terry, he's probably most active on Twitter, actually, of all the places. And uh, we're both there. Fantastic. Well, it was great talking to you. And I wish you continued success with your book tour. And sounds like things are just starting to get going. Yeah, well, it's been an adventure. And I really appreciate the time with you today and, and the support from everyone who's been so great to us. My pleasure. Well, continued success to you. And to our listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by Henderson Brewing Company. On behalf of Teresa Bailey, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Thiessen, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com. Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.